Have you ever thought, really thought, how wonderfully and how richly blessed we are? Do you ever just sit back and just let the world pass in review right in front of your eyes? And think about your family. Think about your community. Think about your country. Think about your church family. Do you ever stop and sometimes ponder and remember all the blessings and all the good things that God has sent your way? I often find that it does me personally. A lot of good to sit down and remember all the good things that God has done for me. And then when I sit down and remember all the good things that God has done for me, I regret that I don't do it more often. I read not long ago about some housewives who compiled a list of things that they were most thankful for. And they wrote that, they were especially thankful for automatic dishwashers because they make it possible to get out of the kitchen before the family comes back for their after-dinner snacks. They were thankful for husbands who attack small repair jobs around the house and then make them big enough repair jobs that a professional has to be called in. They were thankful for children who picked up after themselves and put their things away and cleaned up after themselves and realized that those kind of children were such a joy they hated to see them go back home to their parents. And they were thankful for smoke alarms to let them know when dinner was done. In reality... Most of us spend way too many of our waking hours thinking about the problems that we have to face. We think about the bills that have to be paid and we think about all the things there are that still have to be done. And we spend way too few hours thinking about things that have already been accomplished. And we forget the encouraging things and we forget the encouraging achievements of the past days or the past months or the past years. And we lose sight of the positive, constructive things in our lives and focus on things that are negative and depressing. Sometimes... It's good for us to turn around, look back, and see some of the encouraging things. Because when we look back and see the encouraging things, it gives us the strength to move forward against the things that are going to come. It's something that's good for us as individuals. And it's also something that's good for any group of Christians. Because I think that too often, 
we become way too occupied. We become almost exclusively occupied with the problems that we faced. And so we become so focused on the work that's ahead of us, or we become so focused on the besetting sins that are so constantly around us. And I think over the years there's been too much preaching done along those lines. And I think over the years too many comments have been directed against some of those kinds of things that might need improvement. We talk about areas where we're weak. We talk about areas where we fall short of the mark. And if we spend too much time talking about those things, it can be a very regrettable situation. Because sometimes we need to focus on the good things that are around us. We need to think about the things about our work for the Lord that are encouraging. We need to think about the things about our lives that are encouraging. You see, it's a glorious, splendid, magnificent privilege to be a Christian. Because first and foremost, that means that God, the Creator of this universe, the Creator of all that is in us, it means that God loves us. It means that God is so concerned about us that as Jesus said, He knows the very number of hairs on our heads. Now that's easier to do with some people than it is with others, but God knows how many there are. And it means that Christ has come to the earth and He lived and He died and He walked among men and He did that because He wanted to redeem my soul. Personalize it. Don't say that Jesus came to this earth and He lived and He walked among men and He bled and He died to redeem the souls of men. He came to redeem my soul because I'm important to God. The Holy Spirit has given us a perfect guidebook. A book that tells us how to live so we can be happy in the here and now and we can be happy in the sweet by and by. Folks, it's a great thing. It's a grand thing to be a Christian. And all of that serves to bring me to our text this morning. A beautiful passage of Scripture that I find is wonderfully encouraging. It's one of those passages you read that you go away from it with a song in your heart. A passage that was originally written to encourage the Corinthian Christians. Uh somewhat scandalous church, a church that was beset by numerous problems, a church that was facing a number of severe problems. And this passage was written to encourage them, but it's also a passage that serves to encourage us in the 21st century. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verses 21 through 23. 
Paul writes, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours. And you are Christ's. And Christ is God's. He specifically mentions three people to the Corinthians. He mentions himself. He mentions Apollos, the eloquent preacher from Alexandria that's crossed the Mediterranean and is preaching now in Corinth. And he mentions Cephas, or Simon Peter, who played so great a part in the beginning of the church, who preached that great sermon on Pentecost that day. Paul says, all things are yours. All three of them. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas. Go back to the very first chapter of that first Corinthian letter. And you'll see that Paul is writing this letter to a church that is divided. Because in that first chapter he says, I'm begging you, brethren, there in Corinth, that you all speak the same thing. And that there not be any divisions among you. I'm begging you in the name of Jesus, he says. Speak the same thing. He implores them that they have no divisions among them there in Corinth. They've got to stop this party spirit. They've got to stop this nyan back and forth saying, I'm of Paul. I'm of Cephas. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Christ. And he reminds them, he said, Paul wasn't crucified for you. And Christ is not divided. And what he's telling them is, whatever else you might do, and whatever else you might think, you brethren remember that your religion is centered on Jesus Christ. You see, in Corinth, they had made the mistake of thinking that they belonged to their leaders. And if a man or a woman thinks of it that way, then you've got to choose sides. I belong to Paul, or I, I belong to Peter, or I belong to Apollos. And Paul says, what you should be saying, brethren, is these men all belong to us. You see, they had turned it around. Because everything Paul had taught was for all of them. There was nothing in the teaching or in the example of Apollos or Cephas that was not for every Christian of the Corinthian church. And instead of thinking that they belong to their leaders, Paul says, why not appropriate every good thing in every leader for yourself? You know, we could speak in the same vein in the 21st century. And we could speak in terms of Martin Luther and John Calvin, and John Wesley, and Alexander Campbell. All things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or Luther or Calvin or Wesley or Campbell or whoever it might be. From these men, take whatever good there is but always remember that your life is centered in Christ. 
everyone ought to be grateful for the courageous stand once upon a time of Martin Luther. When he stood up to the evils of the Roman Catholic Church. And there are good things in each of these men, Calvin and Wesley and Campbell. But, but, it is only in the sense that they learn those things from the Lord. I actually like the way Lincoln said it on one occasion. He said, go along with the man who's right and leave him when he goes wrong. That's what they needed to say back there in Corinth. And Paul put it best in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. He said, Be you imitators of me, as I also am of Christ. We belong to Christ. In a practical way, this text means to us that there is a procession of great lives back through all the centuries to Christ and even beyond. And they belong to us. Abraham is ours. Joseph is ours. David is ours. The apostles and all the rest of them, they are ours. And from them we learn God's truth. And by them we're inspired to do better than we would otherwise be. Now notice the text again. All things are yours. The world, or life, or death. I've watched from time to time a show on television called Modern Marvels. It's a show that tells of scientific achievements of great advances in transportation and communication. It tells stories of how man continues to harness the world around him. That's what Paul says truly. The world is ours. And there has never been a time in the history of the world when people have been so challenged and at the same time so blessed as we are right now in this 21st century. The world is ours. But life is also ours. Our life expectancy is greater than it has ever been since the time of Jesus. Think about life. Think about it as a great reservoir of hours and minutes that each of us is given at birth. We can spend our time, as we would say, here or there or doing this or that. But in that great reservoir of hours and minutes, we can live for the Lord or we can live for the devil. The point is that we all have a life. And that life is a great blessing. Paul says the world is ours, life is ours, and death is ours. 
Think about Stephen. A man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. A man that was brought before the Sanhedrin and yet they gnashed on him with their teeth and they took him out and stoned him. The first Christian martyr. And as he was being stoned and with his last breath, he said, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. Think about James. The first of the apostles to be martyred and put to death by Herod. And think about the others that followed after that. We're told by secular history that Paul met his death with the edge of the sword as, his, as he was beheaded. Tradition tells us that Peter was crucified and he requested to be crucified head down so he would not be crucified the same way that the Lord was. Thankfully, in our generation, we're not called upon to die for Jesus. Not here, in this country, not yet. But since we are not called upon to die for Jesus, then what we need to do is make sure that we're living for Jesus. Paul said, it's all yours. The world, our life, our death, are things present, are things to come. That's the very next phrase of this inspiring text. Sometimes it's easy to get discouraged in our day and time. We see court cases. We see the ACLU and the Freedom from Religion Foundation. And we see idiotic judges making rules against religion. And we see the government trying to oppress the freedoms of religion oftentimes. But in spite of all of that that's going on, there are some encouraging things in our day and time also. There are more books of an inspirational nature being printed and published and sold than ever before in history. And even though church membership is in a decline and church attendance is in a decline, I cited a statistic Wednesday night, and by the way, I was wrong. I said that there have been more than a thousand churches of Christ who have closed their doors since the year 2000. That is an accurate statistic. I also said there have been, there are a quarter of a million fewer members of churches of Christ today than in the year 2000. That was in error. It's just slightly over 200,000 fewer members. But even though church membership is in a decline, even though church attendance is in a decline, the fact that these books are being published and people are buying these books is indicative of the fact that people are still interested in religion. And we need to find a way to make them interested in Jesus Christ. And we can turn to the book of Revelation for a glimpse of things to come. John tried to describe it in terms that our finite human understanding would comprehend. When he said it's a place where the streets are paved with gold, where the gates are made of one single pearl, the walls are made of jasper. Do I believe that heaven is going to literally have streets of gold? No. 
I don't really believe there's an oyster around that could make a pearl big enough to be a gate. John's just trying to tell me, he's saying, Tim, heaven's a wonderful place. And it's more beautiful and it's more wonderful than anything your feeble pea brain can understand. But I'm going to try to describe it, Tim, where you'll understand it. And that's what John did. And Paul says, that's mine and it's yours. Because all things are ours. The world, life, death, things present and things to come. And then look at this beautiful passage. You are Christ's. And Christ is God's. That last expression is one that I find truly inspiring. Paul repeats the expression there. He says, all things are yours. And you are Christ's. And Christ is God's. That's why all things are ours. The future belongs to us. Because we belong to Jesus Christ. It's only because we have embraced those truths that Jesus came to teach that we have a confident expectation of future good. If we take Jesus out of our lives, then our lives are built on nothing but sand like Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 7. The future belongs to Christ and to His disciples. That's us. Because Jesus belongs to God. Paul says, you're Christ's and Christ is God's. Go back and see that time that Jesus was living on the earth. And imagine yourself walking down the street in that first century. And you stop a man on the street and you say, who are the historians of our time going to remember? Who will the future belong to? And the thoughtful person of that day and time would take a moment and then they would reply and they'd say, well, I suppose Pilate will have a page in history. You know, he is the governor. And perhaps Herod will be remembered because Herod is the king and surely Caesar would be remembered. And then perhaps that individual would go on and mention some of the more prominent merchants and business people of the day or the notorious bandits of the day or if it was our day and time, some of the memorable sports figures. But that person in first century Palestine if you said, who are the people that are going to be remembered? Well, there'll be Pilate, there'll be Herod, there'll be the Caesars. But that average person on the street in the first century would not have mentioned the name Jesus Christ. To the average man on the street, that humble carpenter from Nazareth wouldn't even be a footnote in history. But the future did not belong to Pilate or Herod. Or to Caesar. How many of you know which Caesar was on the throne when Jesus was crucified? Well, I do. I looked it up. 
Augustus was on the throne when Christ was born, and Tiberius when he died. And the next question is, who cares? Pilate would have been completely forgotten, except he played a one-day part in the story of Jesus. The future belonged to Jesus because Jesus belonged to God. And the future belongs to us because we belong to Jesus. Jesus lived a life perfectly in accord with the will of God. And His impact on the world will never be forgotten. When you and I belong to Christ, we live our lives with the grain of God's truth rather than against the grain of God's truth. And that's what Christianity is all about. Because it's when we give our lives to the Lord and when we follow Him and we belong to Him that we're happy here. And we're going to be happy in that life that is to come. If there are changes you need to make to be sure you belong to Christ, now is the time to do it as we stand and while we sing.